0: We invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of Galatians. We're going to be reading and then studying together chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to take a break for December and January, and then we'll come back to it at the beginning of February. So this is the last bit of Galatians for a while. What a passage to in the year on, with Galatians, so Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse one of chapter four. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I'll just go ahead right there and let you know that in the original text, it actually doesn't say elementary principles, it just says the elements of the world. So just... Bear that in mind. The elements of the world. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge our weakness, we acknowledge uh, the fact that even now we may have so many things that are tugging at our attention, seeking to distract us from the amazing truth of the gospel. And so we pray now for your help. We pray for your power, your strength. We pray for your grace, your mercy in teaching our hearts the truth as it is in Jesus. For His glory we ask it. Amen. It seems good to borrow uh, from the writer of Hebrews as we come to so great a text as we have this morning. Uh, The writer of Hebrews actually gives us an entire book on the supremacy of Jesus over everything. And in chapter 2, having just exalted this divine Savior, this divine Redeemer above the entire realm of angels, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Quote, We must, therefore, we have this great Redeemer, this divine Savior, we must, therefore, pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away From it. It's very Galatians. Be careful that you don't neglect such a great salvation. Do you know that's what we're doing whenever we make ourselves any part of salvation? We're saying that what God's done is not great enough to stand alone. Sufficient. And so I almost titled the sermon, the very last little bit of verse seven there, heirs through who? God. Heirs through God. There's no mention of anybody else, no mention of anything else at all. Just God. And Paul isn't missing or mincing words there. He's actually pinpointing what it means for the churches here in Galatia to ride or die with the false teachers that are distorting the gospel and corrupting them. Question for the Galatian heretics, Paul says. Now that Christ has come as grace has promised and the law itself foretold, are you now really going to say that all God has done through Jesus Christ is not enough? to save sinners completely? Do we really believe God would send His Son to be an incomplete Savior of His people? you got to meet me halfway, folks. No. There's no believing that without believing our salvation is not so very great. Have we forgotten how impossible spiritual freedom was for us to achieve on our own? Have we downgraded our former slavery? Very strong word there. Our former slavery to just sort of misguided free will? Have we let this spectacular achievement, this spectacular mission of Jesus Christ become to us unspectacular? Is God's inexpressible offering no more than what you or I might offer in response to it on a Monday morning over coffee, reading our devotional? How has our Thanksgiving been this week? For the truth we find in our text. Sometimes our gratitude... Needs a Galatians 4, 1 through 7, doesn't it? We need to be told, Your salvation is very great. And so great a salvation seeks out all the greater attention on your part, lest we drift away from it. So let's give our text that kind of attention. Come to verses 1 to 3. And first, Paul's recasting now of our former slavery. He's still exploring our incredible transition from spiritual slaves to saintly sons and daughters and heirs of God. And in doing so, he now explains how you see there in verse one, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. though he is the owner. Of everything, but he is under, he's under, we've heard this language over and over again in Galatians, under the law. He's referring to that here. He's under guardians, under managers until the date. And we've heard that a lot as well. Here's something a little bit new set by his father. Set by his father. So most of that should sound familiar to us. It's about Israel's existence after the promise under the law, and prior to Christ, as God's son. You hear that in a passage like Hosea. If you want to write that down and look at it later. Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. "So what God says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son." Israel. Son. I called my son. And not coincidental to Paul's point, Hosea chapter 11 verse 2 continues that, quote, the more they were called by my love, the more they were called, the more they ran to me. No. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So, Come back to our verses 1 and 2. The idea seems to be that during the age of the law, Israel did not enjoy the fullness, the fullness of what God had promised Abraham. And what slightly complicates matters is that there's a sense in which that's true for the believing Israelite like Abraham. And it's also true for the essentially pagan Israelite like most of the nation tended to be according to Hosea chapter 11, verse 2. Abraham, remember, he really was counted righteous by faith. He really was justified by faith, but it was faith in seed. Faith in promise. He tasted something of the glories that were coming. He looked ahead, he saw Christ, and he was glad. But the fullness of his enjoyment Of that inheritance, it waited for Jesus to come. And that would have been true for every believer in God's promise until the person God promised actually arrived. They were true heirs, but in the interim, under the law, the best they could do was long by faith for the inheritance they owned through God. Okay, But there's also another sense in which Paul's referring to all Israel here, how despite their rebellious hearts, they were counted children. The promises did belong to them. You go read Romans chapter 9, that's what Paul's going to say there. To them belong, the patriarchs and the promises and so on and so forth. But as yet they had zero spiritual access to them. Their existence as spiritual children was no different than a house slave outside the family. As Christ had not come yet, and they'd not believed in the Christ that God had promised, what they did was just prove the power of sin in all people, in humanity. You want to see that? Just go read the Old Testament. And you'll see it in bunches. In Israel, we see people who neglecting such a great salvation proved a great function of the law. What function is that? To expose and then to imprison slaves to sin as being inexcusably guilty before God. To be under the law, here under guardians, under managers, under the law, is to be a spiritual minor who cannot legally think justification, they cannot legally own the inheritance that God promised to Abraham's faith. As we hear that, maybe we go, well, is there any hope at all? Either for faith, like Abraham's, in future grace, or for the one who right now still pretty much prefers their sins over the savior and the good news is that there is that's why paul with an eye to what he's going to say in verses 4 to 7 adds you look now at the end of verse 2 there is a date set by the slave child's free father and when it comes when that date comes then comes freedom Then comes sonship. Then comes possession. Then comes adulthood. Then comes their salvation. But first, look with me at verse 3. Paul's given this illustration to relate Israel's experience to Jewish and to Gentile Christians alike. So, he says, in the same way, you see that? In the same way, we also, when we were children, like that, were enslaved to the, your Bible might say, elemental spirits, elementary principles. The Greek just says, elements, the elements of the world. So, let's start with this. You and I, would not have been managed any better than Israel. We do this really strange thing. We read Genesis 3, and we go, if I was Adam, if I was Eve, we wouldn't have done the same thing. We would have been better. We made a different decision, and all would be well in the world. And we do the same thing with Israel. We kind of track with their history, and we're like, what are they doing? Over... And over again, and we think, if I was in their situation, I wouldn't have done that. I'm not making any golden calves after I've just seen his glory. But guess what? Paul says, that's not true. You absolutely would have. In that spiritual condition. And maybe in a better spiritual condition. In verse 3, Paul asserts, at one time, we all were spiritual minors. And in that state, we were powerless slaves. Same as Israel, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, children of wrath by our very nature. But now, it's right here that Paul does address a kind of difference. But what we see in verses 1 and 2 and here in verse 3, Is that whereas Israel's slavery to sin came under the law, ours, more broadly, was to what he calls here the elements of the world. And all God's people, scholars included, said, what in the world is that? Well, they don't really know. They kind of know. They make some guesses. Here are three. Study yields three main guesses. Historically... Uh, It can be, number one, a reference to the basic elements of the material world. So, earth, wind, fire, water. And then they say, what's meant by that is, metaphorically, the old creation. That's That's where they go with that, okay? The old world. Next. Or, it can refer to the basic principles, that's where you get elementary principles the basic principles of a subject, like the principles of math or the principles of the old law covenant or something along those lines. Or, number three, it may refer to the influence of spiritual powers and principalities who are opposed to the gospel of Christ. And out of all of that, just so you have it, My vote is for yes. I think elements of the world broadly refers to everything that's native to a fallen world that's now under the tyranny of Satan, sin, death, and decay. We live in a broken creation, that's number one, that conspires with lying principles that's number two. And principalities, that's number three, to ruin our souls. And what may be surprising is that it's not entirely allergic to the Bible or to God or to Christ or to worship or to church. It only takes issue with the biblical truth about all those things. The biblical truth about all those things. You see it in the illustration here. Israel's being under whose law? God's. God's law. Until Christ should come to them is akin to our being enslaved to the world's elements until Christ should enter us. And If you look ahead to verses 8 through 11, you'll find the same. Returning to the law. God's law. God's law is returning to this slavery. How is that? Because in doing so, Paul's been arguing throughout the letter, you are denying the truth about the sufficiency of Jesus. Okay? So, here's what's going on, I think. The law, in and of itself, is good and righteous. And holy, but sin in us co opts the law for its own Christ canceling purposes. What God gave to direct sinners to Jesus, sin in us receives as a way to save ourselves. We don't hear what the law was actually given. To preach. You're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. You need Jesus. We don't hear that without the grace of God. What we hear is, you're a pretty good person. You can keep the law. You don't need Jesus. Okay? It's a really odd bondage. But I assure you, it is humanly unbreakable. It is humanly unbreakable. It wars unceasingly against what our consciences, when we're being honest, actually know to be true. It tells us we're free when we know we're slaves. It tells us that we're good when we know we're godless from birth. It tells us that our sins are really, really cheap. A deed that we might call good is good enough to make full atonement. It tells us that God is not so just, that God is not so great, that we need to fear Him or His reprisals. And at the same time, interestingly, it tells us that He is not so gracious as to fool with a sinner so bad as we are. It tells us the way we make to God will do, though, if it's not God's way, We know, ends in death. It tells us all kinds of things. Many things. With one great purpose. To steer us away from Christ. And Him crucified. This slavery we all once knew. To the elements of the world. Seems to be a slavery to an anti-gospel system. Okay? That convinces us to believe wrongly that by religious regimens, earthly restraints, human rules and binding boundaries we can do what only God through Christ and His Spirit in our hearts can do. And that has become heirs of whatever you want to call it. Heaven, glory, eternal life. Okay? So, nearest context to us. We're sitting in a sanctuary gathering as a church. Okay? Nearest context. What this means is A lot of folks, maybe particularly in a Christian South, will conflate church attendance with owning spiritual life. You went to church? Boop. You're good. Okay. It means that we may confuse mere hearing of the Word for being an actual heir of grace. Remember the parable of the soils and the seed? They all heard. We may think, if I say so many prayers, we're that much more, careful now, justified with God if we observe Advent, if we observe Easter, God will be happy enough with me. If we don't touch, don't taste, do this, not that, we will be as living souls before the living God. Whatever we can do, to get around faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ as sufficient. And don't think there aren't principalities behind the self-salvation scheme that reigns in sin-enslaved hearts. Paul's already told us this in Galatians. If an angel should come to you and preach a different gospel to you, you need to understand that's not a heavenly angel. It's something else. Beloved, Satan knows the Bible. What are we doing? Demons believe and shudder. You go to the temptations of Jesus... Who's tempting him and how? Satan with scripture. <laughs> Satan with, I know you're the Son of God. Don't you know you're the Son of God? If you're the Son of God, won't you do these things? Prove it to everyone. The devil spits Bible at the Word incarnate. The devil is delighted to show up for corporate worship. But why? To deafen your heart to the Word of God. That seed gets planted and He comes along like that bird and just plucks it right up so it can't get into your heart and become life. He loves to be here. Deafen you to the Word, blind the mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what does Paul say there? It's Satan who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. He shows up here to capture even the will of believers, Paul says, in the pastorals. He shows up to confuse true consolation in Christ. Why? Listen. Because the last thing Satan wants is for us to hope in God alone. The last thing he wants is for you to believe in Christ alone. The last thing he wants is for you to boast in grace alone. The last thing He wants is for you in this age to actually enjoy the fullness of all you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, as you're worshiping, as you're enjoying it, reveal a divine power in the Gospel that can set any Prisoner free. Alas then, Paul's focus is on the fact that there was a time when all of us were enslaved in Adam to a demonic lie. As it is for salvation, we heard a week ago, So also this slavery, it knows no partiality. Whether Jew or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free, by birth, no one's free. All are slaves and without hope of deliverance in this world. It needs to come from somewhere else. And it's good for us. Paul does this in almost every letter. It's good for us to be reminded of this since former (laughs) reign over us so that we can begin to rejoice as we ought in the sovereign grace of God that has saved us and set us free. So just hear it now. Paul spares not a one of us that he might tell us how God has acted to spare every single one of us who believes. So, look with me at verses 4-7. to And now Paul's reciting of God's sovereign redemption. And as we step through it, my prayer has been that each one, each step will be as a step to the freedom of Christ all over again for you as I see it, there are two main parts. One, redemption accomplished. Redemption accomplished. When you couldn't, and wouldn't even if you could, and when clearly there was nothing in us but willful slavery to sin that would compel God to do so, God yet acted to redeem you. It was ever in His mind, It was always His will as He made a promise, remember this, on His own being. He was moved by His own being, His own glory as God to save us. And so the promise being made, a time was set. And in that, let's not fail to admire the sovereignty of God's grace. Don't you know that all those elements of the world conspired constantly? If they might, not only to confound this grace from the start, but also to keep it from us. How often, you go read through the Old Testament, how often was the promise threatened to non-existence before the person that was promised ever entered the world? And even then, how often was he in peril for his life because of his purpose once he arrived? Still, despite all the schemes of the devil against Christ and those that he would redeem, Paul writes this in verse 4. But when that fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Wow. They don't don't come better than that, y'all. God sent forth His Son. God's grace was unbeatable. It was inestimable. It was sovereign. In these words, the eternal meets with this earth. God's plan and His purpose meets with this place. In them, we hear a note of this pre-existence of Christ. We hear a little bit of His eternity, His deity. We hear His will, His grace, His heart. And do we not then hear just how wonderful a person, you ever considered this? Just how wonderful a person it was who came into the world as sent by God to save us. It was the Father's beloved, Son. His one and only non-adopted. His exact imprint, as Susanna read for us. The very radiance of His glory. It was the greatest, costliest offering God could make. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8? If he did not spare his own son, will he spare you anything? Will he not give you everything you need? Well, how can that be? Because he's already given you everything when he gave you him. So, in sending his son, let's be clear, God did not, this is Paul's point in Galatians, Paul uh is saying God did not send one who was insufficient to save us. He sent the only one who could actually save us. And what a love. What a love. Maybe in the self-giving of Christ, we think only of the cross. It's not a bad place to go. But in these words, we see Christ's self-sacrifice in the world started long before it. Going up to Calvary was a continuation in time of Christ's descent from eternal glory. What we call the incarnation, His assuming our humanity was a willful humiliation of infinite proportions. It was love unfathomable. In being, as Paul says here, born of woman, it was God the Son, Who is due our everlasting praise that made himself a human being in a fallen world with a set purpose not of being served, but of serving slaves who, by our very nature, despised all that he was and would do to save us? Look at the cross. My, what God knew it would take to save you. And will we, Galatians, dare to add our merits as if calling God ignorant and Christ insufficient? Friends, in coming into this world and taking on our humanity, we need to understand the Son chose to subject Himself to all our weaknesses. He chose to subject Himself to our suffering. He chose to subject Himself to temptation and to death. And yet again, He did this to overcome all of that. So, for instance, as Paul adds, Christ, or the Son, was born, not just of woman, but born what? Under the law. And so He wasn't just born a babe in a manger. He wasn't just born a human. He wasn't just born a man. He was born a Jewish man. Okay? Precisely that He might put Himself under the very law He authored. He handed the law. He handed the law to Israel by Moses via angels. And He came to show, man then does not live by bread alone, but by every word, that comes from my mouth. He came to be that representative man. To succeed where Adam and Israel and you and me horribly failed. Though in spying Israel, we just really see ourselves. <laughs> he was born that we would see the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of God. The world, by born under the law, were led really to the saving difference. We're led to a life lived in our place under the law, yet without sin. Paul implies here, you know that righteousness with which God counted Abraham righteous by faith? You remember that? that obedience sufficient to qualify sinners for eternal life, that's gifted to anyone who believes, that righteousness, that obedience, it was actually lived. It was actually lived by a person in this world. And His name is Jesus. So, let's not run to the cross so quickly... That we fail to worship over a life that makes the cross possible. Now, to the cross then we go. Christ did all He did, if you look at verse 5 now, to redeem those who were under the law. It was to take His life to the altar of the cross, and lay it down as price enough to set sin-beaten and guilt-bound sinners free. And in His hanging on the tree, as we've heard, we see He was enough for that. His work, it is finished. He did it. The curse of the law against our sins, it was all absorbed by Jesus. He became a curse for us. Remember that? For us. And the obedience that we lacked, the very obedience He lived was with the forgiveness of sins counted to you and me. By faith in Him, God set us free from under the law. He justified us and He redeemed us. And He did not redeem us to go back, but to forge ahead as true sons and daughters of God. It's redemption applied that follows redemption accomplished. God did not buy us at the price of His Son to let us go our own way and go it alone. He did not redeem us to leave us orphaned. He sent His Son, if you look at verse 5 again, that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. It's that we might be part of the family of God. How incredible. It's that we might have a family with Christ at the heart. J.I. Packer is worth quoting here. He says this, quote, Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification... God says of penitent believers that they are not, this is so great, and never will be liable to the death their sins deserve. Because Jesus, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. But now, adoption, he says, is a family idea. Remember, justification, forensic idea. Adoption is a family idea. Conceived not in terms of law, but in terms of love. And viewing God not as judge, but as father. In adoption, he says, God takes us into his family and into his fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of that relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, he says. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. So now in our text, that's what takes over. Redemption accomplished bleeds over, into redemption applied. It moves us irreversibly from slavery to sin and death and hell into a status as sons and daughters of God, only not like Israel before us. What's added in verse 6 is something very specific to the advent and age of the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus, the Christ. In speaking of adoption at the human level, okay, at the human level, the adopting parents can do so many things. The adopting parents can help a child's habits. They can help a child's routines. Maybe they can help a child's patterns of behavior. They're thinking. Perhaps they can pick up their broken pieces. But what they can't do is change a child's nature. They can pray that God will, but they cannot. But now listen, when God adopted you in Christ, that's exactly what He did. He gave you a new nature. Changed it. In every single one that He's adopted, His grace has gone further still. He sent the Spirit of His Son. What a phrase. Into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, now, so much of what's left for us in Galatians is just an exposition of what all of that right there entails. Okay, But for now, suffice it to say, as we've already heard, that Christ Himself is in you, believer. Christ Himself is in you. Having regenerated you, He has indwelled you to animate you. Remember this? To change you, to shape you, and fashion you after His own image and likeness. And I would just have us see if that's not your experience the way that you want it to be, which, let's be honest, (laughs) it's not. But as it's not, and you just long to know more of it, the answer is, is to know the heart and leading of the person that abides now in your heart. It's to pray. Church, it's against man-centered, we-can-do-it versions of Christianity, that vibrant, gospel-centered Christians will show their sonship, their adoption, how. Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Yeah. Here, the righteous shall live by crying out to God the Father in childlike dependence. Is that our heart's cry every day? And not just as a justified person to the great justifier, but as an heir to our heavenly Father. I'll tell you, and pray you understand, Christ's church is not in exact continuity with Israel of old. We're not a family. We're, We're mostly enslaved to sin and under the condemnation of the law. We're the children of God who have it in our very bones that we belong to Him and He has given Himself completely to us. In fact, the Spirit of God's Son Himself is in you bearing witness to you, to your spirit, that God is your Father, same now to you as a son or a daughter as ever He was To his uniquely beloved son. That's incredible. What depth of praise? What depth of attention can suffice for so great a salvation? Let's give it to Paul's close in verse seven. Let's attend to what's really notable here. He says in closing. So you are no longer a slave. just, uh, Just recline there. You are no longer a slave. But a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, you're an heir. Through God. Through God. Let no other trust intrude. Dear ones, it's by nothing we've done or can do that we've now situated as heirs of God. We're heirs of God through God. What He promised the world through Abraham, He alone has accomplished and applied through Jesus Christ. Let God have His glory for that. And to you and me, let's just receive His all-sufficient grace. Friend, if you came in this morning as an unbeliever, there's really nothing else that needs to be said at this point. You just need to believe what has been said. In Jesus, God has given a Savior to a sinful world. And in believing, God will save you. But Now, beloved, how can I best serve you? How can I best serve you, but by the reminder we've all just heard, You know, I think our time in Galatians has taught us that once a believer, it's not always the easiest to believe, as we ought. To that issue, God sent forth His Son. And today, let that be enough again. Let it be enough again. Again. It's a strange thing that we have to be encouraged to believe that what God has done in Jesus was quite enough to make us heirs along with Him. And yet, here Paul is, because it's where these churches are. So what about you? Where are you? I want to land the plane with Martin Luther because what he says feels right for our time in Galatians so far and until we pick it up again in February. In his great commentary on Galatians, this is what he says. I'll quote him at length here and we'll be done. He says, it's not the law that brings a person to heaven. Mere outward decency does not constitute Christianity. Pagans observe Restraints, but are not saved by them. And as to justification then, the conscience shouldn't be on speaking terms with the law. It ought to know only Christ. Now, he says, to say this is easy. <laughs> but in times of trial, when the conscience writhes, in the presence of God, because of our continued sinfulness, it's not so easy to do. At such times, we're to believe in Christ as if there were no law or sin anywhere, but only Christ, our righteousness. We ought to say, Mr. Law, I don't think you have anything to say to me. Seeing as against your tyranny, Christ paid so great a price to deliver me. So, even as we step away from Galatians for a bit, let's just bear down right there. And let's cling all the more tightly to this one gospel of God's all sufficient grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you so much for your word. Oh, our Father, please help us as sons and daughters, as heirs of grace and glory, to be wonderfully moved to worship This morning, to worship again, to worship our triune God for the great salvation that you have accomplished and applied to our lives. We ask it for our joy, the fullness of joy, as we can have it now. And we pray it for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.